Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Ben Rhodes. I'm guest hosting for Tommy, who is on the road doing his part ahead of the midterm elections here. But we thought that we would take the show on the road here to London. So I'm sitting here in London with uh, David Lammy, who's a member of parliament. Member of Parliament since 2000, David. Uh, it's been a while. Yeah. We're both, <laughs> we met in, I think, uh, 2007 when Obama was campaigning. And I think we're both a little older. You, know? <laughs> you were like the fresh young member of Parliament and I was like the 29-year-old staffer for Obama. Yeah. So that's 11 years ago now. And it was, God, it was a good time. How did, <laughs> how, how did you end up campaigning for Obama from being a UK parliamentarian? So I guess, you know, the truth is that Harvard has a pretty powerful alumni. Yeah. And within that, it has a pretty powerful black alumni. Yeah. And I left Harvard in 1997, worked in the States for a short while, came back to Britain, became a member of parliament in 2000. And shortly thereafter, began to connect with people like Deval Patrick yeah. and Obama and in those days, I was in government. You know, they, yeah. they were really interested yeah, yeah. in the what's it out. like, yeah. you know, yeah. Tony Blair. Yeah. You know, you guys had Bush yeah. and it was grim. Yeah. And then obviously things switched and we remained, as you know, in contact and great friends. So but, you obviously are of African descent. And when you entered parliament, there were not many black parliamentarians. <laughs> uh, I'm curious now, here we are 20 years after you, almost 20 years. I don't want to make you out to be older than you are. <laughs> Here we are in 2018. What is the minority population of the parliament? Well, Ben, when we first met, I used to stand out. Yes, you did. (laughs) In in the British parliament. As a black man, you know, there are a few more of us, certainly less than 10, but I still stand out. But (laughs) we would say minority and include all minorities, and there are 51 these days. But you know, I remember when I used to meet your old boss and we would talk about yeah. it. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, what's it like? Yeah. It's not quite like that. It's getting better. Yeah. But there's a lot more to do in terms of really representing the full multicultural sense of this country and yeah. right across Europe. You know, yeah. minorities are present but not not seen in the legislature. Yeah. People don't have legislatures that look like the populations that they live in. Not in Europe. Not yeah. yet. And just to situate our listeners a bit, how would you describe your constituency? My constituency is in the north of London. It is traditionally seen as a black ethnic minority constituency. I guess in in an American context, you know, it would be placed in New York. It would be somewhere between Queens and Brooklyn Yeah, in feel. Yeah. It is a traditional labor seat. Um, I have an 80... 80- two percent share of the vote yeah so i'm pretty popular in my in my area i represent almost two hundred thousand people and um it's a seat sadly that has had issues it had riots begun there in 2011 and we've had riots previously before yeah well let's get into i noticed when i came here last that just like everything in the United States is about Trump, and that's the only thing people seem to be talking about in the news, like here it's Brexit. Um, And Americans obviously followed the Brexit vote. Here we've had kind of chaos, it seems like, in the pursuit of an actual Brexit. I mean, first of all, just for our listeners, what is the current state in terms of when the UK is supposed to negotiate an exit? and, And how would you describe where Theresa May is in that process? 
Britain is meant to exit the European Union on the 29th of March. Yeah. We will get the emergence of the deal that Theresa May has struck with our European partners sometime towards the end of November or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and we took the referendum. We made the decision to leave. Um, it was absolutely the case that there was absolutely no plan about how to leave. Yeah. There was a two-year clock that button that we pressed when we issued the Article 50. And, you know, your listeners will know that there has been a hell of a lot of turmoil, yeah. Um, yeah. both in Britain and to some degree in Europe since that decision. And, you know, obviously you oppose the decision. Uh, you know, before we get into some of the, the issues in play now, one of the things that strikes me that is similar between the United States and the UK is just like Trump told a lot of lies um, to get elected and continues to, it strikes me that one of the reasons why Theresa May is having a hard time both negotiating something and keeping her coalition together is that the Brexit campaign was founded on a lot of lies, might be the strong word, certainly um, some license taken with the facts. You know, What were some of the promises that were made by the Brexit campaign that they are finding hard to keep in these negotiations? Because basically the promise right, uh, that I remember was we can leave, have all the good things about the EU and the common market too, get you know more money for the health care system, not be inconvenienced too much uh, by the exit, not have to pay the EU. How have some of those promises proven impossible to f- keep? Well, huge promises were made. The British people were promised that they would get $350 million a week for the National Health Service. That has turned out to be a complete lie. The money is shrinking, and indeed, we're going to have a 50 billion bill to yeah. give to the European Union and rising. The British people were promised that it would be easy to extract ourselves from the European Union and that striking new trade deals would be very straightforward. Yeah. None of that turns out to be the true. The Europe, the British people were promised that that the EU needed us yeah. more than we needed them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it turns out that the combined strength of 27 countries, yeah. that just is not the case. The British people were not told anything about the problems that existed or would exist in the island of Ireland, yeah. uh, between Northern Ireland and Ireland, the, the border that would be a, a real issue. And that yeah. is an intractable issue across yeah. the, across, uh, you know, in, in the negotiations. Look, I think it's right to say also, to put it absolutely clearly, that an investigation into the way that the campaigns were run, and particularly the Leave campaign, have demonstrated that there was outside influence, yeah. just like in the American yeah. elections. Yeah, so this was, and I don't know if people in the United States have been following this as closely, but uh, the, the Russians were involved too, right, uh, in terms of... Uh, Cambridge Analytica yeah. and the Russians Same characters. were involved. Now, there will be debate to the degree that that made a difference, but yeah. I don't think there's any debate that they were involved. And I think it's also the case that there is a budget that you can spend and it was overspent. All sorts of things went on. And I guess the real problematic side to this is that in the end, in all elections, the big issue generally is the economy. And most people vote on the basis of of economics. Yeah, This was an election in which ultimately those who voted leave, we were told that they put immigration 
and social cultural issues, sovereignty, Britain's sovereignty above economics, I think that's wrongheaded. Um, I think that that is now coming to pass. And therefore, there is a real change of mood and change of wind. Before we get to that, you know, one thing Americans you were a little bit perplexed by after our election is you had Nigel Farage, uh, who is a lead voice in the Leave campaign here, starting to show up and hang out with Trump and see Bannon. He's eating at the Trump restaurant. And, and, and people, I think, had no idea who this guy is. I mean, first of all, like, how would you describe who Nigel Farage was in the Leave campaign? Nigel Farage was a fringe figure in British politics on the far right a politician who only spoke about immigration and how problematic it was to the British economy and our country, linked that to Europe and the sovereignty, if you like, of the the UK. Why were we pooling our interests with other European countries? Why aren't we a standalone independent nation? He was on the fringe running this very small party, UKIP, and what we saw really was his influence begin to infect the Conservative Party, who who tacked right on immigration yeah. and successive, successive elections, and indeed the Labour Party, yeah. uh, that also uh, started to move into that territory. And and in the end, the the referendum began was was all about yeah. the immigration issue, even though yeah. <laughs> it is. Like night follows day, immigration is good for this country in terms of yeah. who are the care workers working in our, working with our elderly? Who are the people doing jobs that no one else wants to do? Yeah. How is an aging population to pay for its pensions and take care of itself? Yeah. This takes people coming and being prepared to do that. And that is the truth of the story. Most of these people, yeah. young people, not using the National Health Service and that somehow that truth just got drowned out and attached to it a kind of xenophobia yeah. that got really ramped up following the crash of 2008. Yeah. And yeah. there are huge similarities. I was going to say, yeah. I, gonna, I mean, I, I just listening to you talk, uh, yeah. it is really striking how much this is the same political force in the sense that you have a Republican Party drifting right on immigration issues. You have a lot of turmoil following the financial crisis. You have an easier political strategy on the right of embracing xenophobia rather than putting forward solutions. And then just as Trump kind of takes over a Republican Party that had already moved far enough to the right that it could be taken over by Trump, you have a Brexit campaign that gets taken over you know, by forces that are putting forward a real focus on sovereignty, on keeping people out, on blaming the other, uh, on making promises they can't keep about the economy. And, and here we are, right? I mean... Yeah, so so absolutely... With, with, with the Russians coming in and some of the nationalist forces in Europe so, coming in. So what you get is a sense that the Anglo-American world is in crisis. Yeah. And linking back to your question, let's be absolutely clear, Farage, Trump, yeah. Salvini, Bannion, Rees-Mogg, Johnson, Le Pen, Boris Johnson, yeah. Le Pen, yeah. the, they're friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, <laughs> you know, they, they talk to each other. They hang out. They're actually all part of the same movement. <laughs> they're yeah. all part of the same movement. Yeah. Yeah. They trade ideas. Yeah. They organize. Yeah. There are funds and money. Yeah, it's finance. Um, yeah. 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 It's deliberate. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a plan. And there's media platforms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 
after leaving the White House, Bannion's been all over Europe, yeah, yeah. sharing ideas. Has he been here? Or, he uh, has yeah. absolutely oh, been here. Either. He came here just before um, Trump came here. And it's all deeply, deeply worrying. Yeah. Well, and then I saw, so Boris Johnson was kind of the more more mainstream compared to Nigel Farage, the leading voice for Brexit. To situate our listeners, you know, he he quit Theresa May's government as prime minister, basically saying that, you know, she wasn't taking a tough enough line in the negotiation, even praised Trump and saying, you know, Trump knew how to negotiate better than Theresa May. What do you think his play is? Is it basically he knows that Brexit's not going to end well? So this way he can get out and not be responsible and can still keep his cachet with the right. When you look at the Conservative Party now and Theresa May and Brexit and, and some of the other voices, what do you think's happening <laughs> on, on their side? So Boris Johnson is probably the biggest opportunist in British politics. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are people on the right of British politics yeah. who would say that as well. He was not... I don't think he can be described as an unsuccessful mayor of London in which he was, in some ways, uh, ran as a compassionate conservative and governed as a compassionate conservative. But boy, oh boy, has he tacked right as his party has moved right in order to outflank Theresa May. And he took this decision to head up the Leave campaign. Uh, Never expected himself to win, I don't think. One... Um, was a pretty unsuccessful foreign secretary, um, has left. But I think what we're seeing is a horribly divided Conservative Party, partly because the promises made do not ring true. You know, there is an idea amongst some, I think those who, who are really keen on sovereignty, that Britain can stand alone and almost reinvent its imperial empire past with no understanding that most of that was forged by bitter battle, those pink bits of the Atlas. You know, the Americans kicked us out, but uh, they're not coming back in that way, certainly. Uh, And there are some conceits. For example, we are going to reduce immigration. Well, you know, Ben, when you go to negotiate with the Indians, a trade deal, what's the first thing they're going to ask for? Visas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they care about. Immigration is going to increase, not not, not diminish. And market access. (laughs) Precisely. So, And there is also those who want a real deregulatory push. They would like us to be the 51st state of America. They would like us to be kind of a Singapore or Switzerland off the coast of Europe, very low employment rights, very low probably on environmental concerns. Um, That is a vision and others do not share it. And some of them are prepared, frankly, to see the economy growth reduce at least over a 10, 15 year period for this ideal that will win out in 15 to 20 years time. So the the Conservatives are in deep, deep trouble. And I think it's right to say that Labour is split also, because it's also right to say that there is a hard left point of view that the European Union is a kind of corporate conspiracy, is a race to the bottom, I think, uh, has increased inequalities. And let me just be honest, of course, there are issues within the European Union, but it is my view that we need to be in this international partnership, that actually the miracle of the European project and the European Union after the Second World War is a great ideal despite its problems. Yeah. And that what Britain had was the benefit of both uh, the centre of the EU 
and to some extent alongside Germany and France, really important. And then this huge relationship with the United States. That post-war deal after Suez if you like, and that sense of decline that Britain felt was the best things are going to get. Yeah, yeah. And the idea yeah. <laughs> that you're going to kick over the can in Europe and then still hope that yeah. you have that proximity to the United States, I think is unreal. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. We were at the UN in 2016, Obama's last uh, UN General Assembly. Theresa May's government floated this notion of having a meeting of the US, the UK, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, all the Anglo countries. <laughs> and we said to them, why? <laughs> what will we meet to discuss? I mean, the, there's the US, there's Europe. There, yeah, we have alliances with those countries. And we have the G7 and we have the G20. We, we're not going to recreate a new kind of Anglo block. And meanwhile, the China's emerging and India. I mean, the world has changed. We can't go back to the days when Churchill and Roosevelt kind of sat around and divided it all up. Um, and and I, 
you know, listen to you talk, I mean, on the left, it does seem like, you know, you can resent the bureaucracy of Brussels or the kind of corporatism in it. But I, I noticed that, you know, you've called for a vote of some sort on whatever Theresa May come, comes up with, right? Is there any chance for another popular voice on the Brexit question? Or do you think that that is, uh, is not practical? I think there's a growing chance that yeah. I have been one of the leaders of the fight for a people's vote here in the UK. Why? Because it's absolutely clear that in the referendum, significant lies were told in the campaign. Yeah. And quite a lot of people, because we're not used to having referendum in this country frankly, wanted to stick two fingers up to the government of the day. Don't forget our campaign was led by David Cameron yeah. and, and George Osborne, our Chancellor, Minister of Finance at the time. And they, they wanted, you know, you ask them, how do you feel about politics? They want to, you know, make it clear to you that they're not happy. Yeah. Because there is an issue with an establishment in Westminster yeah. uh, and here in London. There's a huge issue post-2008 on how austerity, yeah. let's be absolutely clear and American friends may not understand this yeah. as, 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 as well, but here in Europe and in, in the UK, purse strings have been tightened, public spending yeah. has been shrunk. A lot of people really struggling, yeah. struggling in their families with falling wages, but also their access, their experience of the NHS, their experience yeah. of education, local authorities. This is our local government layer. Doesn't get talked about a lot. Hugely important. The people that take your rubbish away, the people that, yeah. that clean up your parks, the, the, the people that make you feel that civic glue cut to shreds yeah. Yeah. in this country. Yeah. And people were pretty angry. Uh, and, and indeed... Some of that responsibility lies with the European Union, perhaps, but most of it lies yeah, yeah. <laughs> with yeah. the government of the day. Yeah. And perhaps, to some extent, the new Labour government before that. And in a sense, now we've had a proper debate over the last two years. We really have had a debate. People mm. know the issues. They know the arguments. And very, very shortly, in a few weeks' time, we are going to get the deal. Yeah. And so the proposition is... Actually, can we seek the consent of the people to whatever deal we get? And we may get no deal. And every single economist, the governor of the Bank of England said house prices in Britain would fall by 35 percent and we would have a recession deeper than the recession we had in 2008. My God, you've yeah. got to seek the consent of the people. Do you want this deal? Yeah. Or would you re prefer to remain within the European Union? So that is gathering pace. Obviously, it's it's now a position that the Labour Party in its conference has finally said is going to have on the table. Our Liberal Democrats, Green, mm -hmm. Scottish Nationalist colleagues are in the same position. And there are Conservatives calling, including the former Prime Minister, John Major, for a people's vote on that deal. So, of course, yeah. I think that's where we're heading. So, you basically, these three scenarios, Theresa May gets a deal. It's probably not going to be a good deal. You're going to have to pay a lot to the EU uh, you're not going to get as many of the benefits of the common market. You're still going to have some of the cumbersome uh, entanglements with Brussels. None of the things that were promised in terms of money, the NHS are going to materialize. So you're going to have either she gets a pretty bad deal. You get no deal, which means a hard Brexit, which means you suffer all the economic pain of that kind of complete cutoff from the European market. And then there's a third option of whether it's a bad deal or no deal, at least some people's voice on it. How do you see, I mean, I, I know that predictions are difficult in this environment. How, how do you see this playing out? I haven't got a crystal ball. I don't think Theresa May will survive as prime minister. Yeah. 
I think there might well be turmoil in my own party if we're not in the right position yeah. on this. I'm glad we changed tack at our party conference. My own view, as I said, is that I think there will be a people's vote. If there isn't a people's vote, then I think Britain will deepen the sense of division mm-hmm. and the sense of anger. And let me put it this way. I think it was Lyndon Johnson that said when he signed the Civil Rights Act that the Democrats had lost the South for a generation. Now, he was being negative about, obviously, from my point of view, a great piece of legislation, but did not go down well in the southern states. And he was, in fact, right. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I think that those who have been the proponents of Brexit, Mm -hmm. when the winds of change come, or if they're to come, and there is this economic downturn, and Britain goes back to being this sort of isolated slightly problematic place on the fringe of Europe, like we we were in the 70s. I think that those who've been on that side of the argument will pay a deep price. My worry is, just as we saw after the referendum, David Cameron, George Osborne, Nigel Farage, people flee the scene of what they had created, that we will see a generation of politicians leave the scene and the mess will be picked up by those left and particularly the millennials. And let me just absolutely say there is a real sense in the UK that young people and the millennials feel betrayed by a set of politicians who are now going to move to a situation where they haven't got access to Europe. They can't uh, freely travel, freely go and work and settle. All of that is shut off and the economic prospects for the country are less than they were as a consequence. And this is against a backdrop, of course, in which there's a huge, a bit like like in the United States, there is a, you know, as you talk about the, um, you know, the Rust Belt, those middle states, middle yeah. America, here in the UK, we have a north-south divide. Yeah. Uh, where there is, you know, significant wealth in London. I mean, not in a constituency like mine, but but in the centre of London and vast parts of the north of England shut out of that economic dream. Yeah. Well, so in that situation, which has got a lot of similarities with the US, I mean, millennials here didn't vote for Brexit, just like millennials in the US didn't really vote for Trump and now feel completely unrepresented by the politics that they're witnessing. You know, we spend a lot of time on these podcasts in the United States kind of thinking about what what do the progressives do? What does the Democratic Party do? What is labor's roadmap for dealing with this, um, both to reclaim power and to solve some of these problems? You've got Jeremy Corbyn, who initially was thought as kind of a placeholder, you know, unreconstructed socialist, but who then did quite well in the last election and was able to mobilize young people and did seem to be returning the conversation to economic issues from the immigration and kind of xenophobic politics of the right. What, within coming out of your party conference, where do you think the direction is for labor? Well, I actually think that the challenge for progressives after a period in the center ground of politics, the kind of Blair-Clinton period particularly, is to recognize that in a period of huge inequality and rapid technological change, where there are, there's less work and less quality jobs, you know, to some extent in the middle and in the bottom, and where that idea of paying your way and leaving a good legacy for your children is kind of vanished 
it's clear to me that the only way forward is for progressives to understand that they need to get behind much more redistribution of wealth. Now, that is the old socialist position. I know it's a dirty word in the United States, but in the end, it's it's redistributive policies. Well, Um, yeah, in the US, you do see, though, uh, this new crop of candidates embracing single-payer health care, Medicare for all, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the crop of Democrats running in the House includes a lot of people pushing for similar ideas. Do you you think this breakdown in politics should lead, it sounds like you're saying it should lead progressives to be somewhat bolder in embracing more aggressive solutions and being less bashful about being for Ah, what they're for? Look, absolutely. So the reaction to this changing world is either a right-wing populism that blames the other, blames the immigrant, or you have to redistribute, which means a minimum income guarantee. It means the sorts of policies that Obama began pursuing in healthcare in the United States. It means a different relationship with big business and corporations, much more akin to the German model where workers are on the board and have far more more proximity to power. Um, It means huge advances in education. Some of the challenges that exist in the United States, for example, they simply can't continue. And you can't afford to put so much money into remedial. (laughs) You've got to get it right first time around, right? And we have challenges still in our education system. You know, don't forget here in the UK, we saw this horrendous fire, Grenfell Tower, this housing development, social public housing largely, where 72 people lost their lives in a preventable fire. In a way, it was a bit for us like the Hurricane Katrina moment, where Britain had to face up to serious issues of inequality, of poverty, of poor housing, and very, very poor local democracy and policymaking at the centre, and indeed a degree of greed around gentrification. All of those questions are questions that the progressives have to have answers for, have to be bold and confident about. And to some extent, I think that Jeremy Corbyn has captured a mood because he was the first politician here, brave, to challenge austerity and move in that direction. Now, the prescription, the formula, the individuals, of course, will change and come and go and there'll be debates. And I have to say... Some of the challenges, I think, particularly for progressives, is staying united, is recognising that for us, it's also a a big tent. I think that in Britain, it has to include social democrats and socialists. um, And the United States will have its own version of that. We saw some deep splits between Clinton uh, and Bernie Sanders. And and in the end, you then allow the right to go forward united and dominate. What do you think in one of the other things is that, you know, we were talking before about how there's this kind of movement on the right that spans the Atlantic, you know, the Trump, Farage, Bannon, I would say Putin and and others. Do you feel like there's enough dialogue, cooperation among progressive parties, the Democratic Party, the Labor Party, some of the European parties? It it strikes me that there could be more uh, effort to develop common solutions to these problems than there is. I think there could be way more discussion, yeah. way more mutual organization. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to what I said before. 
the hard right are organizing yeah. and they're financed yeah. all over the world. What are we doing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're complaining. We're, we're, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah. You know, we're complaining, we're fiddling around yeah. and, and we're largely out of power and a long way from power. So, of course, we've got to act together. Yeah. Globalization is real. These are global tides. These are central themes around income, employment, the nature of an economy, what does redistribution look like and what what do we say is the minimum guarantee? What is back to that conversation about what is the welfare state that holds people and that indeed provides some sort of insurance scheme against the backdrop of, I think, tougher times, tougher times ahead. So we have to get organised yeah. and, and I welcome much further discussion. And I suppose it's why also for... For, for politicians like me spending time abroad yeah. and having friends like yourself and yeah, others yeah. Is, is is so important. Well, And one of the challenges for the left is, because uh, uh, I agree, being bolder on the, the prescriptions for what happens at home, and but somehow not leading that to the kind of older form of socialism that opposed any kind of globalization, cooperation. It can be compatible that the UK and the US can move in that direction at home while still embracing some degree of global integration, global movement of peoples, trade, cooperation issues like climate change. So it also is necessary, you know, when you get into foreign policy and trade and migration policy, to make those ideas work across borders. I think climate change is the great example yeah. because it's always interesting that this is one area of public policy where progressives are united, yeah, yeah. that we have to work together, we yeah. have to be internationalists, we're upset that we haven't gone further. Yeah. And we recognize also the challenges that exist in some of the developing world in, in moving in that direction. And in a sense, we take that template and we've got to extend it further. We can't just confine it yeah. because we're so concerned about the future of the planet to that one area of public yeah. policy. Look, I, I think the other thing is to remember what the alternatives are to this. We now have Trump ripping up. Yeah. He may even rip up the WTO. Yeah. He's certainly, oh, yeah, I think he's setting that direction. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's certainly completely altered the trade norms that we have been used to up to this point. And again, I think he's selling a myth to parts of middle America that simply won't fly, right? So we have to be in a place of reconstructing that global world recognizing yeah. its challenges with the technological tide that exists, but nevertheless prepared to work together. And there are big issues. A growing issue in our countries is mental health of young people. Yeah. There is emerging evidence that some of the changes around social media use yeah. are contributing to that. Those require global solutions to stand up to a new yeah. type of big business. Yeah. In yeah. fact, they cannot be done alone and we cannot allow or believe that the right are going to be the ones to yeah, do that. Yeah, they aren't going yeah. to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, even the problems that the right doesn't like, like refugees, you can't deal with. I mean, you need a, almost a Paris-style agreement with every country involved to divide up the responsibilities to deal with that. Unfortunately, that requires a United States that is you know, mobilizing some degree of international cooperation. Okay. 
Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. You know, we are so inside of the reality show in Washington with Trump. We do pay attention when he goes overseas and, you know, he's genuflecting in front of Putin in Helsinki or, or, or picking fights with NATO. Um, but I think Americans don't get a lot of a window into what people around the world are thinking about Trump. You know, here in the UK, here in London, how have people <laughs> received the presidency of Donald Trump and, and, and how might that be changing their views of, of America? Well, let me tell you that there are very straightforward things here that Donald Trump has done that have... I think, challenged everyone. So, for example, we experienced terrible terrorism in Westminster and in London Bridge. Donald Trump thinks it's cool yeah. to get onto Twitter. Pick a fight with Sadiq uh, Khan. And, and to pick a fight with the mayor of London, to characterise London as being sort of overrun with the sort of Muslims and Londostani. And that is deeply offensive to people in the UK at a time of great national concern around terrorism. No, no US, there are, you know, our great allies. No, yeah. no one would behave like that to yeah. friends. We, of course, see the way that he's dealing with minorities, the way that he's dealing yeah. with children, immigrant children in his own country. I am particularly connected to the Black Caucus. 
I hear everything that yeah. he's doing on race and rolling back the tide. Um, and of course, I guess because we're here uh, having this conversation in London, we also join the dots and we know who he's connected to yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. back in our own country, yeah. you know, and frankly, far right movements. You know, he thinks that Le Pen in France is, yeah. is you know, it's great. She's a good woman. Um, so all of that, I think, sits badly, which is why yeah. so many people turned out to protest and march against Trump. Now, they are, let me be absolutely clear, they are not marching against the American people. Yeah. So you they know, still separate out Trump from the broader American public. Well, some of your listeners will remember that George Bush didn't go down particularly yeah, yeah, well. Yes. <laughs> in, yeah. in, in London, in France, yeah. in Germany. If George Bush didn't go down well, can yeah. you imagine yeah. how Trump's going down? He's going down like a cold bucket of sick. That's yeah. true. And, yeah. and, and But I might say that the American people and the democracy that is America have the opportunity to turn their backs on Donald Trump when their election comes. The UK, on the other hand, is stuck with this Brexit. Brexit. So, I mean, I think that we ought not to get too caught up in saying, oh, poor old America, look, they've got Donald Trump. Um, It does seem to me that the other things we associate with America... Um, strong progressives campaigning, organizing, protesting yeah. uh, are, are to some extent alive alive and well during yeah. this period that feels a bit like a circus. Well, it, you know, it strikes me that the next two elections, our congressional election and the presidential election, will be pretty definitional for America in the UK and around the world because if people see the United States revalidating what Trump is doing, that might cause them to fundamentally rethink what they believe about the United States. In other words, he got elected. Now we have this very unusual president who picks fights with allies, who picks fights with allies when there are terrorist attacks, uh, who behaves in undemocratic ways at home, cozies up to dictators abroad, picks fights with NATO. If, if that is, in a sense, endorsed by what happens in the next two elections, well, then maybe the United States isn't the country that is the natural leader of the world. If it's rejected and rejected strongly, there's a there's a space for the United States to kind of reemerge and kind of play the role that people would like it to play in many parts of the world. So, I mean, are, do you get a sense that people here are going to follow our, our congressional election more closely than they normally would for that type of reason? Oh, I think people would love to see the fight back. Yeah. They would love to see a rebalancing. Can I caricature it this way? Yeah. I've sensed when I've gone across the world that people are slightly perplexed with this Brexit story in the UK, partly because they see us as small C conservative, balanced, nothing radical. In relation to the United States, and I remember being there with you and others when when, um, Barack won. Um, But I also remember being in a a George Bush White House. There's a sense in which America is the country that's is just on trend, yeah. you know, and somehow what's happening in America really affects the world. Yeah. So I think if you're sitting in London and you see the Americans affirm and affirm yeah. Donald Trump, it's a giddy feeling that you feel here yeah. in your soul if you're progressive, because that has implications in your own country. And in a sense, it goes back to this point that the Anglo-American world is in crisis. Yeah. If you're a progressive, it's in crisis. Yeah. Is this a different world order emerging in which we see the likes of Putin 
Erdogan, um, I would put in, you know, um, Trump. Netanyahu, these sort of big man themes. Duterte. Uh, are we back to that kind of models of leadership? I Which mean, destroyed other... this continent <laughs> twice. Absolutely. Yeah. And we don't need it again. It also, you know, if you're a parent, we're both parents. Yeah. It sets a terrible example to children, this yeah. sort of behavior. Oh, I worry all the time about, I mean, my daughters are a little too young, but, uh, you know, kids who are kind of 10 to 15, what they're watching on television and how that's going to impact the people they become. The stakes really are global. In an interesting way, on the trend side, Brexit preceded Trump. You know, we tend to follow these similar trends. Sometimes the UK is a little ahead, sometimes the US is a little ahead. But it does seem like maybe a closing question or note is that in the US, the one thing that makes me optimistic is... The energy right now, the political energy, does feel like it's emanating from progressives. You know that that pendulum is beginning. You can feel it beginning to shift. Do you have a similar sense here, or is is Brexit just so complicated and you're so bound to it that it's it's going to be more difficult to break free of it? I have a lot of belief in the millennials. I meet them. I see them on social media, and in that sense, they are a progressive generation it feels to me yeah however human beings are living longer baby boomers are still on the stage yeah uh, in many places they're still running <laughs> yeah. the stage yeah. um, and then we've got this mini generation which i think you and i and gen x yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mini baby boomers yeah, yeah. um uh, <laughs> so there's a there's kind of a lot to play for I, I yes we've got an energy but i do see and you know i am subjected to quite a lot of um Racism, outright yeah. racism, death threats from parts of the far right um, here in, in in the UK. And indeed, actually, I also get threats and things that emanate from the United States. Now, fan we've yeah. got a fantastic police here that makes sure that people like me and my family are safe. But, but uh, perhaps because I see that really acutely, yeah. I've watched the way over the two decades I've been in UK politics – I've seen it grow. Yeah, and the social um, media just amplifies uh, uh, it. And social media absolutely amplifies it. I think that, um, you know, I don't, I'm not in the mood to be... Can't afford to be too naive. Too complacent or yeah, naive yeah, yeah, yeah. about our opponents who feel emboldened at this point yeah. because of the things that we have discussed. So, Ben, the point is we have to organize. Yeah. We have to work together. Yeah. We have to finance. We have to be on policy. We have to remember why we're in this business and that there are lots of people, lots of people in both our countries and across the world who are aching in this globalized world. And we have to be responsive to their needs. Yeah. Well, look, I think that's a great note to end on. And, and as uh, we've been talking a lot about in the United States, that's a, a call for young people to be more engaged to make the choices that will determine their lives, because uh, one of the difficult things about the Trump and Brexit elections is that older people cast votes that had huge impact on, on, on young people uh, that went against their wishes. Well, David, thanks. It was great talking to you, and uh, it's always good to see you here. And thanks for taking our, our podcast global here. Thanks, Ben. Thanks a lot, good. David. 